very disconcerting when you stand up to preach and your family walks out the side door, but <laughs> they are going downstairs to minister in our junior church, I assure you. Had nothing to do with me, I don't think, but uh, it is good to be back with you again this week, and I am happy to report that uh, this year's men's canoe trip was more about enjoyment than survival, uh, and God blessed us with a wonderful weekend, wonderful weather, uh, great time on the lakes, and uh, uh, we're grateful for that. Uh, today we return after a break last week, where we returned to our series on the courage to lead. And it was probably inevitable at some point during our series that we would have to uh, touch on the, the life of Martin Luther King Jr. because of his seemingly impossible courage, right? Uh, whenever I think of him, I think of someone who just seemed uh, invincible, unflappable, I think is the word I would use, that uh, uh, seemed to have this inherent ability to stand up to whatever uh, threats might have uh, come his way. But that was a picture that I had of him. Uh, there's a book named Welcoming Justice, and a man by the name of Charles Marsh describes an evening in his life that fills out a little bit of, uh, not so much the backstory, but it just fills out the picture that I have of, uh, of the man and, and his courage. The evening he describes was in Alabama in January of 1956, and King had a full schedule of organizational meetings that day. He returned home a little after midnight, uh, his wife and daughter already in bed. He was exhausted. He was looking to join them, to get into bed and, and to uh, get some rest himself. But there was a threatening phone call, and it, when he he faced these threatening phone calls at their peak 30 to 40 times a day. But this one particular phone call that he received as he uh, was about to go to sleep shook him in a way that he wasn't able to put out of his mind the way that he had, he had so many others. He tried to go down to sleep, and I'm, I'm sure I've had this experience, you've probably had this experience, you go, to your, you go to sleep, you put your head on the pillow, but the thoughts don't stop. Different things keep coming to mind, and that was his experience. He just kept on repeating these hateful words that had been expressed to him, and he decided uh, it wasn't getting very far, trying to sleep, got up, went down to the kitchen, made himself some coffee, and he cried out to God in prayer. That night he had an encounter with, with Jesus that he would say would carry him through his ministry. He would later say, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. That night, Jesus' voice of reassurance proved to be greater than the voice of threats and intimidation that uh, had been a daily part of his life and uh, at, on this particular day had been robbing him of strength and confidence and peace. Sometimes we hear accounts like that and say, well, I wish God would speak to me like that. I'd kind of like to hear you know, God uh, uh, speaking words of reassurance. But uh, probably many of us have never had as, uh, as personal and profound a, an experience like that because many of us haven't uh, had the ounce of courage that he had or faced the, uh, the barrage of 
uh, of challenges that, that he did in his life. But we worship the God who does meet us uh, in those days, meet us in those times when we feel uh, that we have been uh, undone. Today we're talking about the courage to follow where God leads. And uh, uh, it would be helpful for all of us, before we hear God's word, that we have a very clear idea in our minds, what are some of the areas, maybe there's just one area that you could identify where you feel God wants you to do something, God wants you to follow him in some area, but you just don't feel up for the task. You don't feel the, the courage to, to go forward in that area. You don't feel uh, the strength to be able to, uh, to do that. Uh, I, last time I was with you, I shared with you uh, the fears that I had of serving God in the toddler room uh, early on in, in, uh, in our marriage. Uh, but that's not where my fears ended. There are many fears that have uh, that I've realized and God has confronted me about at various points in my life and ministry. We've said fear, peeps, it, fear is one of the main things that keeps people from trusting Christ. Uh, fear is, is what keeps people from being baptized. Fear is what peeps, keeps people from trusting God with their finances, with their sexuality, with their relationships, with their conflicts. Fear keeps people from taking on responsibility. It keeps people from, from leading when it would be so much easier to, uh, to encourage from the sidelines. What is the area in your life where God wants you to follow and you just don't feel like you've got the courage to get there? Fear is getting in the way of what God wants you to do. I hope you have a clear sense of that. Uh, because I want to give you three reasons from Scripture why uh, I believe you should confront that fear. To do that, I want you to turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Uh, and I'm going to read from uh, just the end of that chapter, verse uh, 36, all the way down to chapter 7, verse 8. Judges six thirty-six. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once, once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry in the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them and by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, 
Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. This is the word of God. Now the first reason I want to encourage you this morning to confront the fears that would keep you from following him is because I believe this passage teaches that God uses second-string believers. We often see our spiritual inadequacies. We see our spiritual immaturities, and we see we kind of exclude ourselves from the kinds of things that we see God doing in other people's lives. But Gideon and uh, God's dealing with him in this passage teaches us, and I think is trying to persuade us, that God works through second-string believers. He works in spite of our uh, spiritual inadequacies. Now, we've already seen Gideon's fears and cowardice in the previous passage, but each time God patiently addressed each one of them. He responded to the fears. He responded to uh, his anxieties. But here, Gideon's fear causes him to question God and his commands to him. It's interesting to me that if we were to ask you before this series, what do you know about Gideon? Probably out of 99% of us, the first thing that comes to mind is the fleece, right? Gideon's fleece has become famous. He leaves out a wool fleece overnight and asks God to make the fleece wet and the ground dry. Then he asks God to make the ground dry and the fleece wet. He puts this test before God. Christians will today talk about putting out a fleece as if Gideon is given here to us as a a model of how to pursue God's will, how we can know one way or the other what God wants us to do. But Gideon's fleece here has nothing to do with discerning God's will. God has already clearly told Gideon what his will is. The problem is Gideon just doesn't believe it. God has already told him exactly what he's going to do, exactly how he wants Gideon to be a part of that plan, and Gideon responds by saying, that sounds awfully far-fetched. Maybe we could put a little insurance policy on this. Maybe we could add some extra layer. Maybe you could do some things for me, God, to convince me. We know that because in verse 36, Gideon says, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, and then he lays out his fleece idea. At this point, we're supposed to be saying, Gideon, 
if God has said it, there is no if. If God has already announced what he is going to do, you don't need to add questions to that. You do not need to bring your question marks to that. And yet that has been the temptation since the garden. If you look again in verse 37, after Gideon has explained his fleece thing, he says, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Again, God's word on its own isn't enough to move Gideon. He wants to read God's word, to know what he wants, and then to somehow have God prove himself. He wants God to jump through his hoops to, to prove himself faithful, to convince him that what he says is true. And some of you here this morning are probably doing that in different ways with God. You know what God has revealed. You know what he teaches. You know what he has said to you, perhaps in a particular area of your life, or maybe just in an, in an area of, of, of values or uh, his commands or will for us. But you're looking for more proof. Either some of the teachings of God are either too costly or too unpopular that you just find them hard to take on their own. And so you ask God to give you a little extra. Prove himself. Show me, because I'm, I'm not quite sure about this one, God. I'm not sure whether your word's enough. The Bible calls that testing God. Amazingly, Gideon sets up not one, but two tests for God here. And the second time he says, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. He, he's saying that. He's saying, please let not your anger burn against me because he knows that God has every right to be burning with anger against him. He knows that God had said in Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's exactly what he's doing, not once, but twice. Given the warnings, you might expect God to respond in a dramatic way at this point. You might expect God to strike Gideon down at this point. And yet, interestingly, God doesn't say a thing. He just does what Gideon asks. God responds to the doubts and questions regardless of Gideon's attitude. And that causes problems for some of us because some of us want to, want to take away the wrong lesson from this. We want to, we want to say, look how God answered Gideon. That's, Gideon must have gotten it right. And the whole point of the passage is Gideon got it wrong and God ministered to him by his grace anyway. The point is that Gideon was a second-string believer and he should have been put on the bench and God put him on the field anyway. That's how God works in our lives. That's how God relates to people. It's on the basis of his grace, and if it wasn't on the basis of his grace, all of us in this room would be hopeless. We would be uh, w without hope, because like Gideon, we're full of flaws. Like Gideon, we often find ourselves struggling in doubt. It's not just Gideon that, that God works in this way with, right? With, get, with, uh, with David, we see God used David and he became an adulterer. God used Noah and he became a drunk. 
He used the suicidal Elijah and the sharp-tongued Isaiah. He used Peter the denier and Paul the persecutor. And you start to see the string of characters that God used, and you think, maybe it's not just a coincidence. Maybe God deliberately chooses people like this. Maybe this is what God is like. God seems to have a thing for second-string believers. I remember a sem- seminar I attended in Japan by a somewhat famous pastor who had seen some incredible things in his church and through his ministry. And many people had gathered to listen from him and learn from him. And I'll never forget, he, he came to this point uh, in his talk and he said, we like to hold up inspirational stories of Christian heroes. But he said, most of the work I've witnessed God accomplish has been, uh, has been carried out through immature and mediocre believers. I can't tell you how encouraging I found that. Like, if God uses immature and mediocre believers, there's hope for all of us, folks, right? This, this, is, this is the God we serve. He takes people like Gideon. He takes people that mess up and get it wrong. People that come to him with cowardice and fear, and he uses them so he might show his glory in them. And so if you're here this morning holding back in some area of your life, holding back from following God because you don't really measure up. You're not kind of Christian biography material. So the idea of actually obeying God in this area of your life, making some sacrifices, following him in service, stepping up into leadership, if you're disqualifying yourself this morning because of some inadequacies you see in your own life, remember what a numbskull Gideon was and how God used him anyway. God loves to use second-string believers. And so we can't bring any of our spiritual inadequacies to God and say, look, God, I'd, I'd love to say yes, but of course you, you couldn't use a guy like me. Don't let your spiritual faults and past get in the way of you saying yes to God today. So the first reason I want to show want you to show courage in following where God leads is because God loves to use second-string believers. But the second reason is because God, God works through weakness rather than strength. Sometimes we see our limitations, and now we're not just talking in the spiritual area, we're talking about all the rest of us. Uh, we see our limitations and our weaknesses, and we assume we're kind of, we're just half-rate material. We feel apologetic before God as if, I, I realize someone, someone's needed here, but surely you can find someone better than me. Surely there's someone like more qualified, more capable, more intelligent, more winsome, more, more disciplined. I don't know. Surely there's someone better for the job, God. And so we back down from what God's asking us to do. I want you to see how God delights to work through weakness rather than strength. It's usually his preference, actually. We see this in the second part of the passage we read today. Gideon has finished putting God through his hoops, right? And now God speaks. In verse 2, he says to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me. And if you're, if you're Gideon, you're thinking, like, too many? What are you talking about? He 
he had just gone to great lengths to gather up some 32,000 Israelites. And he's certainly not thinking that he's got too many people. These 32,000 people that he's gathered have been living defeated for seven years. They have been eating very poorly. Every time harvest came, harvest was stolen from them. These, these are poorly equipped, defeated people. There's 32,000 of them, and they're facing a Midianite army that's made out of 135,000 well-equipped, well-resourced, well-fed warriors. They're totally outnumbered. But God feels that there are too many Israelites. But notice why he says that there are too many Israelites. There's too many Israelites because if we go into battle as is, you guys are so proud, so self-righteous, so independent, you'll think that it's because of your military prowess. You'll you'll somehow come up with an explanation that, that it was a pretty fair fight and we seem to get lucky today even though they were outnumbered some four to one. And we do that all the time. When we feel confident, we end up taking credit for what God has done. We forget how much we need him. We forget how much we need to rely upon him. We become proud and self-reliant and independent. Listen to what Psalm 33, 16 says. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. You see what it's saying? If you're a king, you want a great army, right? And here it's saying a king can have a great army, but that's not going to save him. If you're a warrior going into battle and it's like hand-to-hand combat, you want to be strong. The stronger, the better. But as Goliath might tell us, just being strong often isn't enough to to succeed in battle. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. We need God even in the areas where we feel confident, those areas where we can go into autopilot because we're good at it, right? We're good at this. I I don't need God in this area. When I really get in a in a, in a pickle, and I don't know what's going on, then I'll maybe pray. But I feel pretty confident in this area. And the verse says, no, no, even if you feel confident in this area, you need God. Even in that area, it is God, God is the one who brings, uh, brings victory. He brings effectiveness. And so the big advantage of our weaknesses and limitations is that they remind us how much we need God. They remind us how much we need to depend upon him and look to him and then give him credit for the victory. If you're keeping count in this passage, you'll notice Gideon started by testing God two times, right? God didn't say anything. He just answered him, did what he asked. Then you get into this passage here a little bit later down, and now God has his own tests for Gideon and the army. And it's not a coincidence, probably, that God tests Gideon twice. God tests those who test him. He he starts first by cutting the numbers down from 32,000 to 10,000 in verse 3, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Then God proposes this unusual test. Because they're at a spring, he says, I want you to size up the way people are drinking the water. And he 
gets into this uh, uh, elaborate test. And, and by the way that they're drinking water, he'll take them from 10,000 down to 300. Now, if you've heard this passage taught before, if you've read it before, it, it used to be common for people to, to make a lot of the fact that the people who were rejected knelt down to drink the water. And the 300 who were chosen, chosen lapped the water with their hands to their mouths. And the idea was that the people who were kneeling down were lazy and they were not very good soldiers. And these 300 that were, were lapping the water that like this, it, they were like super alert kind of commando types that were this elite army and God had singled those out and those were the ones that were going into battle. That, that, that used to be taught frequently. Most scholars don't hold to that distinction anymore. They don't hold to that distinction anymore because nothing is said of the relative uh, strength or merit or, or worthiness of the 300 over the others who were sent home in this case. Also, because in verse 5, those 300 who are lapping the water in this particular way, they're compared to dogs. And in ancient Israel, dogs were a term of contempt. They were, you would kind of, if you were trash-talking someone, you'd call them a dog. And that would mean like, not, not in an in a endearing way. It meant like, you're really disgusting, lousy. And, and uh, uh, it, it was a way of expressing contempt towards someone. All that we can say for certain is that the 300 were chosen because 10,000 was too many. God needed a really, really, really small number. God wasn't looking for commandos. He was just looking for a small number so he could show everyone that it was his victory. It was his strength on display. And he wanted to do that so that Israel, like you and like me, wouldn't take credit for what only God could accomplish, what God had done. God needed, in this case, 450 to 1 odds to convince the people it was his glory. It was, he, he was the one who could save them as a people. And it's a reminder that our weakness is an opportunity for God to show his strength. Probably the most famous example of this is the Apostle Paul, right? He was a talented and disciplined individual, and it would have been easy for him to become proud and self-righteous. So God gave him what is only ever referred to as a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. We don't know what it was. I think because everybody can say, if it was one thing, people will say, well, I don't have that, but I got this other thing. No, it's kind of this generic thing that we don't know uh, the specifics on it. All we know is that God deliberately gave it to him to humble him to keep him, he says, from becoming conceited and proud. And God said about it, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God delights in our weaknesses because when we feel weak, we are moved to depend upon him and experience his grace, his power, and then his victory in our lives. Asaph came to a similar point in his faith in Psalm 73, verse 26. There he said, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When you begin to see that your true power is in Christ, and you trust that your true resources are in him, it gives you courage to then follow in what God is leading you to do. 
Because you look at this thing that God is calling you to do and you say, I just see how I don't measure up. I don't think I could do that. But when you've come through those experiences to experience and realize your true power is in the power of God, your true resources are in the resources of Christ, then you don't back down when God calls you to move forward. You don't feel the inadequacy as a roadblock anymore. You see that as an opportunity. Maybe the very fact that I totally feel in over my head and out of my league in this particular situation is because God wants to show that I'm in his league, that, that he's going to show his power on display. He wants to, me to realize who he, who he is, not for me to somehow prove to him who I am. And so you don't see your weaknesses as disqualifications anymore. They become means for God to display his power, for him to display his glory. And so go back to that thing that's, that I asked you to think about, that thing that's keeping you from following God in his leading in some area of your life. Do you ever think that you're not smart enough to share your faith? Do you ever think, I just don't know enough to teach a Sunday school class? Do you fear that you're not healthy enough to do anything significant? In God's kingdom, strength is a liability. Weakness is an advantage. It's a means to divine strength. And so let's rest in his power. Let's put our weight in what he can accomplish and what he can provide to us. And trust in his power, not our own, that we might follow him where he leads. So we've said God loves to use second-string believers, right? Following God and lasting spiritual impact isn't just for the heroes of the faith. It's for mediocre and average believers like you and me. Then we said God works through weakness rather than strength. Self-confident people become self-righteous people, and they ignore God and live independent lives. God works through people who feel like they're in over their head, who feel their weakness, because it's in those people that God is able to show his strength. The passage gives us a lot of encouragement, but it also gives us a warning, and so I want to uh, uh, end our, our time there with the final reason of why we should follow God where he leads. It's the people who are too afraid to trust him miss out on the victory. God is going to do something, and God is doing something in this world. But when fear begins to dominate and push away faith, we don't get to see it. We don't get to be a part of it. We don't get to be a part of what God is doing in his amazing plan. People who are too afraid to trust him miss out on the victory. Now we get the first hint that this might be a theme in verse 1. There we learn that Gideon's army is camped at a spring called Herod. And the camp of Midian is by the hill of Moreh. Now Herod is a word in Hebrew that means trembling. So they're camped at the spring of trembling and the Midianite army is at the hill of Moreh and Moreh means teacher. So it seems that the trembling people are about to get an education of some kind. And that's exactly what takes place here. In verse 3, Gideon is commanded to, to announce, whoever is fearful and trembling, 
let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Now, if you're, if you're Gideon, this seems like a terrible idea, right? Like, if you're fearful and trembling, come over here, I'll give you a little pep talk, and then we'll all go back into battle, because I would be terrified to go into battle missing all of you people and having you sent home. Gideon knows that having been defeated soundly for seven years and being outnumbered at this point, still four to one, if he says, anybody who's fearful and trembling, you can go home now. In fact, I'm asking you to go home now. He knows that there's, there's going to be some people that defect, right? At least several hundred might go, might go home at this point, and he's worried about that. He might not have anticipated that at this point, 22,000 people, more than two-thirds of his army, turn around and walk out on him. That, that probably wasn't part of his uh, battle strategy. That probably wasn't very encouraging to him. And it seems like an absolutely ridiculous plan on God's part. Like, why would he do that? Why send home two-thirds of your army? Why, why let go 22,000 men when you're already outnumbered five to one? But as you look at Deuteronomy, you realize this was actually one of the battle gu- guidelines that God had drawn up. God said, in fact, anytime you go into battle, if you got any fearful people, if there are kind of some people that are kind of anxious and worried about this whole thing and kind of wringing their hands and thinking, I don't know if we can do it, guys, tell them to go home. Tell them they're not needed. They, they, can, they can wait this one out. Deuteronomy 20, set, 20 verse 8 says, The officer shall speak to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his followers melt like his own. See, the problem with unbelieving fear is that it spreads. When fear will dominate a person's heart and faith takes a back seat or doesn't, doesn't get shown at all, that attitude will spread in the group of God's people. It only took 10 spies to bring back a fearful report from the promised land, and the entire nation said, we don't want any part of it. 10 spies. 22,000 soldiers who didn't believe that God was able to do what he said he would do would rot the hearts of the other soldiers. They would not be a strength. They would not be a resource to to this victory. I love this quote by G. Campbell Morgan. He said, the trouble today is that the fearful and trembling man insists insists upon remaining in the army. He wants to be there, but just to fill everyone with fear and anxiety about what's going to happen and what's going to go down. Now, this isn't to say we we shouldn't be discerning. We need to be wise, but ultimately we also need we, we need to trust God where he leads us. Fear in the camp will undermine God's victory. It will undermine God's people. It will undermine their faith. And I don't want that for our church. I don't want that for our lives. I don't want to miss out and be sent home when God's offering us ringside seats to what he would desire to do in our midst. J.G. Stipe once said, faith is, is a little bit like a toothbrush. 
Everyone should have one and use it regularly, but it's unsafe to use someone else's. And I don't know what you think of when you think of your life and the fears and the uh, challenges that you're facing personally. Maybe I'll address the man. How many of you men are holding on to your wife's toothbrush this morning? How many are you relying on her faith to lead you through this thing called the Christian life? Uh, maybe, maybe you're young people. Maybe your dad drove you to church this morning, and that's, that's totally fine and cool. But you wouldn't want to use his toothbrush, right? Like that's just gross. And in the same way, you, you don't want to rely on his faith, on your parents' faith, on your mother's faith, on your Sunday school teacher's faith. There comes a point in our lives where it has to be our faith where we need to respond, where we need to take ownership of the things that God is trying to do in our lives without any of the crutches, any of the supports, and without relying on other people's toothbrushes. It has to be our own faith. By faith, we take God at his word, and we lean on his strength, and we do so personally. Psalm 34.4 says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Do you believe that Jesus can do that in your life? Not some psalmist, not some preacher, not some parent. Do you believe he can do that in your life? If you do, then let's seek together the victory that only God can bring. Let's seek the assurance that only Jesus can give. And let's lay hold of his power, the kind of power that gets displayed in weak people, in mediocre believers, in people that don't really measure up, but know that by trusting in a God who more than excels, that we can experience grace and help and victory. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we can't help but confess that we let too many things hold us back in fear. We can't even begin to imagine living with the daily and even hourly death threats that were an ongoing part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. Help us to see the fear that keeps us from trusting you, the fear that keeps us from obeying you. Give us the courage to confront the excuses that stop us from following where you lead. Father, I thank you that you use people like Gideon. That gives me hope for my life. Thank you that you use weak people who are outnumbered because we don't often feel very strong. Help us, Father, to trust you. Help us to act like you really are our strength. For we ask you in the strong, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.